This is the Ballistic Whisper Podcast. Your education, your responsibility. We're here to help. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into brachiation. Brachiation is probably something that many of you haven't heard too much of, or if you have, never really let that thought cross your mind of bridging what you're seeing or what you think brachiation is into a clinical situation. What we're going to do today is we're going to hopefully bridge that gap and address brachiation and bring some new light to brachiation in a manner in which you hadn't quite considered it before. But before we do that, we've got to go over a couple things. Outlaw Movement Systems does not have any financial or other associations with the manufacturers of commercial products, suppliers of commercial services, or commercial supporters. This presentation does not involve the unlabeled use of a product or product under investigational use. There is no financial or in-kind commercial support for this activity. Outlaw Movement Systems does not discriminate based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, disability, military status, sexual orientation, or age. Outlaw Movement Systems is committed to accessibility and non-discrimination in all aspects of its continuing education activities. Participants who have special needs are encouraged to contact the program organizers so that all reasonable efforts to accommodate these needs can be made. I am creating and recording this as part of my responsibilities to Mercy Healthcare Systems. This falls underneath my normal Mercy job duties as well as my reimbursement plan from Mercy. This course is for educational purposes only. It is intended for licensed healthcare professionals with the ability to use exercise to treat pain included within their state scope of practice. If you're not sure, it's your responsibility to check with your state board before using this with patients. Most physical therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, and occupational therapists will be operating within their scope. Athletic trainers, you need to check your state's practice act to ensure that you are operating within your scope of practice. For massage therapists, exercise physiologists, and personal trainers, this is generally not within your scope. Anyone can use this information for educational purposes only. If you're going to apply these techniques to individuals that you are treating, please make sure you have a solid rationale which should be based upon an assessment. We are hoping that you will assess use these interventions, and then reassess to ensure that you're achieving the outcomes that you were anticipating. So, what is the intent of today? Like I said on the very first of this discussion, we're going to talk about brachiation, and many of you probably don't have much information or understanding of what brachiation is. So I think it's important to get the intent out of the way. I want to give you a, a, a significantly deeper understanding of brachiation so that you can use brachiation as a tool at a very high clinical level. Um, I'm going to do that by providing some research to support some explanations of the effects of brachiation. And then I'm going to get in and provide some specific applications and how to um, apply some of the techniques of brachiation. We are providing CEUs for this. Once you complete a quiz and a course review, and those will be provided by Outlaw Movement Systems. Objectives, I'm going to give you a historical perspective. 
If you want to figure out where you're going, it's kind of important to know where you've been. So we're going to go over the where we've been part of brachiation. Um, I want you guys to be able to develop an advanced ability to implement brachiation into your treatment plan. Uh, do you watch all of this? You should be able to apply brachiation to what you're doing with your patients. I want you to be able to construct a treatment plan that utilizes brachiation to target very specific clinical objectives. Um, I hope that you'll be able to understand the systemic effects of brachiation and inversion. We'll talk about what those differences are as we get to um, a little bit later and deeper in the conversation. And then I hope that we're able to examine what the research reveals regarding brachiation and inversion. Sadly, there's not a lot of research on brachiation. Um, we'll talk about why we're dealing with that in just a little while as well. Real quick, I think, like I said, we need to have an overview of what brachiation is, especially if that's something that you're unfamiliar with. If you if you don't know what brachiation even is, I'm wondering how you got to this presentation, but I'm glad you're here. Um, so why I want to go over the brachiation is it can give us a little bit different perspective. If all you've seen of brachiation is an 80s video or some pictures of your parents or grandparents hanging upside down from some weird contraptions, being able to make the leap from that to implementing it into a clinical plan of care is, is going to be a giant leap. So we're going to start out giving you a very broad overview of what brachiation is. Brachiation is essentially hanging from the limbs. It can be hanging from the arms, it can be hanging from the legs, it can be hanging from one arm, it can be hanging from one leg. It's essentially just hanging from the limbs. We have to understand that brachiation is not the same as climbing, and we'll talk about that in a little while. The two have very distinct differences that separate what they are, and understanding that allows us to apply some very specific intents with what we're doing. Some other terms that I'm going to use that aren't brachiation are traction and inversion. The definition of traction is a pulling force that's exerted on a skeletal structure. The definition of inversion is to reverse in position or to turn upside down. Um, all brachiation is going to involve traction. There's no way to hang from the limbs without exerting a pulling force onto the skeletal structure. However, not all brachiation is inversion. Um, a majority of the brachiation from hanging from the lower lo uh, the legs is going to include inversion, but not all of it. Um, majority of the hanging from the arms isn't going to involve inversion, but there are some versions that will. Several of us probably remember back to when we were younger playing on the playgrounds. If you were lucky and actually had playgrounds that had monkey bars before those were deemed unsafe, we brachiated all the time. We'd climb to the top of the monkey bars, we'd hang, we'd hang from the back of our knees, we'd hang upside down, sometimes we fell, we were young, we bounced. That's the, the beauty of our younger years. We're more resilient than we are as we get older. But just understand certain forms of brachiation do involve inversion. Every form of brachiation involves traction. Um, if you're formally trained in, in physical therapy, occupational therapy, athletic training, you probably recall back to a course or a class that you had where you went over the topic of traction, um, long axis traction, distraction. That's not brachiation. 
more often times than not, what you're taught in those courses is we put a patient on the table, we either use our hands, we use a strap, we use a pulley system. We use something where they're laying on the table, laying on the ground, seated in a chair, and we apply a force to, to, to create some mechanical gapping to open some tissues up. That's not brachiation. So brachiation always involves traction, and brachiation occasionally involves inversion. All forms of inversion are brachiation, and all forms of inversion have traction. So it's important to understand the distinction because each one gives us a little bit different outcome on the backside, and that's what we need to understand so that we can apply it to the patients that are standing in front of us. I think it's important to understand how we got here. Dr. Robert Martin was a physician and was really the first person to talk about um, brachiation. He started talking about this in the 1960s. He came out with a system that he called the gravity guidance system. I uh, attached a YouTube link that in the notes for this presentation you can uh, follow this link and it'll take you to a video from sometime in the mid 80s where you can actually hear Dr. Martin talking about his gravity guidance system and where it came from and, and what he was able to do with that. Later on in the early 70s, he wrote a textbook, or he wrote a, a book called Cum Gravity, Living with Gravity, which was based off of his gravity guidance system. And, you know, he's really credited with bringing brachiation to America. Um, that book from the 1973, Cum Gravity, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, the first paragraph of the introduction. Students of gerontology and longevity believe, longevity believe life expectancy of the average human being should be about 150 years. Based on this, the average person is presently living only to the middle ages of 72 years. Why are we losing all this valuable time? So this is, again, written in 1973, and so I'm assuming that the middle age of 72 is based on the average life expectancy then. But there are times... Or, in, in lots of different texts and lots of different stories passed down, life expectancy of 120 to 150 years was quite commonplace. We don't see that these days. Don't know why. Not saying that hanging brachiation is going to, to automatically add seven years to our life. But we have to ask some questions about what's different. One of the things that we know is different today versus 1973 versus 1900 versus 100 years ago is our lives have changed. We are a lot less active. Uh, we spend a lot more time in seated postures. We aren't physically moving around and doing what we used to do. Even, even being active today is different than it was a hundred years ago. Dr. Ed Thomas is essentially the easiest way to describe Dr. Thomas is he's, a, he's the, the, the living reference on all things physical education, um, related. He has been there, he's done that, he's written a book on it several times over. And one of the things that he talks about is in, around, around World War II, we saw a shift from in physical culture. We saw a shift from calisthenics, movement-based activities to sport-based activities. Roll the ball out, let's play basketball, let's play soccer, let's play football. And that shift in in focus, that shift in intent has led to an overall shift in how physically re ready we are to live our normal day-to-day -day lives as humans. 
The nice thing is life has gotten so easy now that we can get by without being able to get into the bottom of a squat, without being able to do a pull-up, without being able to do a cartwheel, or a lot of things that were considered normal just one generation ago, two generations ago. And so what Dr. Thomas talks about is how activity also has changed because of the change in intent and the change in focus. Add that to just the overall change in how lives are lived, and now we're, 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 we're in an environment, we're in a situation that we literally have never been before. Um, it's a constantly moving environment. And one of the things that, that Dr. Martin uh, talked about was, was the importance of gravity. And Dr. Thomas followed up on this in some of his writings. Um, chapter 2 of Dr. Martin's book opens up like this. Gravity is a force acting at all times upon every object on the earth, including the human body. Gravity does only one thing, and that is to constantly pull at things towards the earth. Unidirectional gravity is, therefore, guiding the direction of all weight and forming the stress lines to that point. With the human body being limited during occupation, recreation, and rest to the postures of sitting, standing, and lying, the forces of gravity can do only one thing to the human body, and that is to pull the tissues and organs of the body downward. Eventually, this distorts the shape of the body. So, that's important for to understand because when we get into brachiation, what Dr. Martin created and what Dr. Thomas has further developed is we need to understand that we need to manipulate gravity, and gravity is constantly acting on the body. Um, Dr. Martin, uh, what's on this slide is an excerpt from an article that Dr. Thomas wrote called Children of Clay. What Dr. What Dr. Thomas wrote about was the three uncommon postures. Well, there's the three uncommon postures, which means we have to have the three common postures, which again is something that Dr. Martin wrote about. But the effect and the, the reason of these three uncommon postures is decompression and elongation to counter correct the adverse effects of gravity produced by the common postures. And those common postures being sitting, standing, and lying. The uncommon postures are the extended posture. Think of a backwards bend. The brachiated posture, the posture hanging from the limbs, upper or lower body. And then there's the inverted posture, upside down, like we, both of those like we were talking about before. Essentially, what both Dr. Martin and Dr. Thomas were getting at was we have to tap into these uncommon postures to counter the negative effects that the sustained sitting, lying, and standing, what gravity does to us because of those sustained forces. Because like Dr. Martin said, gravity applies its constant relentless force to the pliable, moldable, movable structures of the body, much like a potter manipulates and molds clay. We can essentially, gravity essentially is shaping the body. What our intent is with brachiation and inversion is to slow that down just a little bit, to take a little bit of control back from gravity so that we can, if we understand gravity, we can use gravity. We can manipulate our orientation of the body in regards to gravity so that we can shape some of these structures. As we get into this lecture, there's going to be three parts. Part one is going to be a research review. 
Um, we're going to go get in and get talking about the different research applications. And that's where we're going to go now. So when we talk about this, we're going to get into the research. And one of the things that you'll notice about the research is it's all old. Um, there's not a lot of recent research on brachiation. You have to ask yourself why. Well, one of the first studies that I talk about is the study that was published in 1983 um, in the Western Journal of Medicine, where essentially they came to the conclusion that, quote, physicians should be made aware of the potential risks associated with inversion procedures. And what they were talking about was cardiovascular risks. Um, blood pressure, heart rate, and how inversion created problems with that. And their recommendation was that inversion was unsafe. Up to this point, inversion and, and brachiation was something that had taken on a boom. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, this was quite popular. People were hanging from inversion boots, inversion chairs, inversion tables. There were multiple companies and manufacturers out there of inversion products. And it was something that was continuing to grow. Um, there was lots of money in it. There was a lot of popularity in it. However, once this article was published, things stopped. Uh, the inversion brachiation industry essentially dried up. Teeter is a company that's around today that manufactures their inversion tables and their anti-gravity boots. Teeter's the only company that sustained through that drought. Uh, they were around in the early 80s and they saw through it and they continue to be around today. But unfortunately, once that dried up from a popularity standpoint and once people thought that it was unsafe, essentially it disappeared. And if there's something that's been deemed unsafe, there's a, why are people going to implement it? Why are we going to take something that's been deemed unsafe from a cardiovascular standpoint and look to incorporate it into a, a situation where we have individuals that are compromised, being a, an orthopedic rehab situation? Um, so unfortunately, we see a large gap in the research because of this one study. Um, it is important to know and, and if you notice um, the next research article I'm going to talk about is an article written by the same authors published in the same journal one year later and I'm going to quote what they say. In view of our new work in this area, however, we have modified our opinion of the safety and gravity inversion therapy of gravity inversion therapy for healthy participants. We conclude the that the oscillating gravity guider device is a safe manner of utilizing gravity inversion therapy. Now what they're talking about, the gravity guider device was the device that they, they used as their uh, mechanism of inversion in both studies. A year later, they, they came back and said that we messed up. Um, our findings were premature. We now deem it as safe. Unfortunately, by that point, the damage had been done. Um, inversion therapy was on its way out the door, and we didn't really see a resurgence of that until Dr. Thomas started to bring things back in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when he started to implement inversion into the Iowa public school system, as well as with the U.S. Army in regards to training the soldiers um, 
in a manner to try and offset some of the, the training injuries they were seeing because of the constant load and pounding they were taking through their normal day-to-day -day training. Inversion, uh, the, the hanging people up, the brachiation by the lower body was a great way to counter that and to do so in a manner that offset some of the compression that they were getting in their normal day-to-day -day training. Next article I'm going to talk about is by Flagel et al. Uh, titled Climbing, a Biomechanical Link with Brachiation and with Bipedalism. This one was published in 1981. So far the oldest one that we have. Basically, you read this article and their big surmise from this is that climbing and hanging are not the same thing. And I think that's an important thing to talk about. Um, in climbing, we have very high levels of mu muscle activation. In suspension, we have significantly lower levels of muscle activation. Um, suspension from the arms, what they found, created a very unique strain on the musculotendinous interface within the skeletal system. And then what they also found was that there's a presence of brachiation, brachiating adaptations in the limbs of many species that are not currently brachiators. I'm not going to get into a discussion on evolution versus creation. Um, that's well outside the scope of what this is. But what they found was, in addition to humans, there are several species on the planet today that are not currently brachiators, and by brachiators we mean primates, um, that do not live with hanging and climbing and brachiation as a primary means of travel, like we see with many of the primates. But there are several species that don't do that, that have adaptations that have come from brachiating at some point in their history. Um, so take that for what it is, but we know that that hanging, hanging from the limbs, has created some skeletal evolution, some skeletal adaptation, probably a better word than evolution. It's created some skeletal adaptations. Um, it's, I think where we can also go with this is that by understanding that hanging and, hanging and brachiating are not the same thing, it gives us a little bit better idea of how we want to implement the two. A high level of muscular activity versus a low level of muscular activity um, because there is quite a bit of difference between the two. Next article is from 1930. I'm going backwards in time. The origin of man from a brachiating anthropoid stock. What this author wrote about was essentially man has not lost the ability to brachiate effectively. He's going through and looking at comparative anatomy of the limbs, the hands, the feet, the pectoral girdle, uh, the pelvic girdle of man, and he comes to the conclusion that we are very similar, those structures are very similar to gorillas and chimpanzees. Um, he also notes that our humerus is very similar to the humerus of brachiating chimpanzees. Again, this isn't an evolution or a creationist discussion. We're just looking at what do the facts show us. The facts show us that at some point we were off the ground. Maybe we were swinging from trees. Maybe we developed from trees. I don't know. That's something for each of us individually to make that decision on their own based upon our belief system. But at some point, we spent some time off the ground, and that has created anatomical adaptations. And I think that's important to note because that goes back to supporting 
what Dr. Martin and Dr. Thomas talk about in referencing in reference to the body being very similar to clay. And we are using gravity to mold that clay. We're using gravity to mold the body. We see skeletal evidence that the body has been molded by being off the ground. We've seen changes. We see changes currently. So we know that, that being off the ground and brachiating can create change in the skeletal system. This article, the next article is a little bit earlier, or a little bit more recent, it's from 1985, titled Vagotonic Effect of Inversion Therapy Upon Resting Neuromuscular Tension, published in the American Journal of Physical Medicine. Um, for, before I go any further, copies, uh, or references for all these are included in the, show, in the, in the lecture notes, um, as well as... Um, hopefully links to the articles that are open source. I tried to pull as many of these from open source um, areas as I could so that if you want to go back and find these articles, you are able to go back and find them and read them and see if you can come to the same conclusion that I did. Anyway, this article, what they found, this one, they're specifically looking at inversion therapy. They were using full inversion, fully hanging somebody upside down. Um, and what they found by doing this, they found a, about a 28% decrease in neuromuscular tension in the muscles that they were looking at. What they did, they took people, they hung them all the way upside down, full inversion for two minutes. Then they looked at the effects that they had, and they found that the effects stuck around for about two hours. They also noted that there was no change in resting heart rate or blood pressure, which is very different than the original articles on inversion that showed that it was unsafe. So here we have another article that a little bit later in time, two years after the first article in 1983 was released, it comes back and shows that heart rate, blood pressure, we don't have any significant changes with that. Um, they go on to further find that at a head down, which is negative 1G, so negative gravity, um, in regards to the orientation of the body, there is a release of sympathetic stimulation that decreases the sympathetic responses and sets the stage for a shift in autonomic balance towards a vagal or parasympathetic dominance. Basically, what they're talking about here is that by changing the orientation of the body, getting that inversion, what that does is we see a change in our nervous system. We see a change from a sympathetic response, sympathetic dominance, which is our fight or flight dominance, to a parasympathetic response, which is our rest and digest dominance, or which is the rest and digest side of things. So it makes perfect sense that when we are able to shift our central nervous system out of fight or flight into rest and digest, that we see a decrease in tension. Uh, we see a decrease in muscle activation. And I think that's important for us to understand because one of the things we're going to talk about one of the benefits of inversion and brachiation isn't isn't so much the mechanical outcomes that we have that we get from that the actual physical gapping of the tissues but really where we have missed and where the the, the real benefit of both inversion and brachiation lies is in creating a very unique and a very rich sensory environment for the central nervous system we can manipulate inversion to where we can now change from a fight or flight response to a rest and digest response. We can pull some tension off the table, which is very important for a lot of the different, for several orthopedic cases, orthopedic situations that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis.
1985, inversion therapy, a study of the physiological effects. What they were looking at here are the physiological effects of inversion therapy, if you didn't get that from the title. They found that the minimum time to see any effect was about 70 seconds. They also found that there was an increase in lumbar flexion range of motion. They also found a decrease in muscle activity, and they found that at about the three-minute mark, and they were looking at the erectors, the paraspinal muscles, um, they noticed a decrease in observed lumbar lordosis, and again, like the, the previous article I referenced, they noticed and they, they documented no change in cardiovascular markers. So here we have a second study. It was done a little bit later after that original 1983 study that comes back and says there's no change, no big risk from a cardiovascular standpoint. We also have a second study here that shows we have a decrease in muscle tension. We get a decrease in muscular activity. They were again, we're looking at their version of, of inversion was a little bit different. Um, this study was they were inverted to 60 degrees, so not a full inversion of 90 degrees. They were inverted to 60 degrees, and they were in more of an inversion chair. So the hips were flexed at 90 degrees. Um, their back was supported. They weren't hanging from the ankles. They were hanging more from the hips. Um, but in any instance, their central nervous system was inverted significantly in regards to the effects and the direction that gravity flows. So again, we found a little bit different version of inversion. Version of inversion, that's interesting. We found a little bit different version of inversion, but we also found a very similar decrease in muscular activity. And one of the things that we can relate that to is again, the fact that we're seeing a change in our what's driving the central nervous system. We're switching from a sympathetic response to a parasympathetic response. We're dialing things back. 1986 article titled The Effects of Inversion Traction on Spinal Column Configuration, Heart Rate, Blood Pressure, and Perceived Discomfort, published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. They inverted their patients for seven minutes in two different uh, inversion apparatuses. One of them, they had an inversion boots that were hanging from the ankle, and the other was a product that was out at the time called the Gravity Gym, where Hips were flexed at 90 degrees, and essentially they're hanging from the thighs. So with these two different versions of inversion, what they found was in both groups, there was a decrease in standing lumbar lordosis. They didn't attribute it to a reason why. They just observed it. Um, they found that heart rate decreased while blood pressure increased during inversion. So we saw a drop in heart rate, but we saw an increase in blood pressure. Neither one were to... Concern, what they would consider concerning levels. And then in, more importantly, what they noticed was after they returned, removed them from the inversion and returned them back to a normal orientation, both heart rate and blood pressure returned to within normal, uh, within normal limits within a minute. And they also found there was an increase in gapping, an increase in the distance between L5 and S2. So once again, we have a study. Um, we see actual structural changes, albeit short term, that are occurring from inversion. We see cardio, in this one, we see cardiovascular adaptations, 
not to a problematic level and all that returned back to normal when we removed them from an inverted position. So again, we, we have a study that shows cardiovascularly, there's not a lot of risk with this, and that we do see some changes within the structure. I think it's interesting that they talk about a, a decrease in standing lumbar lordosis, but they don't attribute it to, to where it came from. They, you know, they don't talk about whether or not they felt that it was actually the, the spine changing shape or whether or not it had anything to do with um, certain muscles being turned on more, certain muscles being turned off more. They just noted there was a change in lumbar lordosis. 2018 article. This one is very new. Uh, looking at titled uh, Efficiency of Static and Intermittent Gravity Inverted Therapy Techniques and Improvement of Motor Apraxia and Cognitive Abilities and Autism Spectrum Disorder. They looked at kids and individuals with, that were on the autism spectrum and included some type of inversion some type of appropriate inversion into their care and into the treatment plan for these individuals. Um, the in, the, the, they have a very intensive inversion protocol that they followed, which is very, very good. They follow, they had they included both static and dynamic inversion progressions. Um, they, they, they looked at this, they had two groups, the group that got the inversion therapy and the group that didn't get the inversion therapy, don't worry. Both groups got the same level of sensory integration therapy. Um, it's just the control group got that in isolation. The testing group got the sensory integration therapy with inversion. From what it appears, not they didn't follow the exact same inversion protocol with every, pay, every subject that they took through. Um, but what they did was they scaled the inversion to what was appropriate for that person. And one of the things that reading a lot of the inversion literature goes back to is um, what is tolerable. They want as much inversion as is tolerable for the in individual. And so they don't specifically address how that decision was made within this article. But I do think uh, from, re from what I read, they were trying to make it the most tolerable for each individual. And what they found was actually quite interesting. Um, they found overall a significant increase in fine motor skills and cognitive processing for those patients with autism that had inversion. And, you know, they noted that the vestibular receptors are stimulated by both movement and gravity. And the sensory system plays an essential and vital role in skill development. We have to understand that movement is a skill. We can't understand it. It's a, very, it's a very universal skill. It doesn't allow us to play a sport. It allows us to, to be humans and get through life, but movement is a skill. So understanding that movement is a skill that is based upon our sensory system, and we know that gravity and movement affect and are stimulated. We, we know that gravity and movement affect our central nervous system goes back to talking about or goes back to some of those early art, earlier articles that um, again referenced a shift from fight or flight to rest and digest. So we have another article where we're leaning back to some of the benefits of inversion and brachiation 
coming from the effects on the central nervous system, not just the mechanical effects of creating the gapping that we get from gravity. 2012 article, inversion therapy in patients with pure single-level lumbar discogenic disease, a pilot randomized trial published in Disability and Rehabilitation. This one, uh, both the control group and the study group all did the same base level of physical therapy, but the study group had six two-minute sessions of inversion to their tolerance. And again, there's that in to their tolerance. What they found was traction at less than 20% of body weight was essentially considered to be placebo. They didn't see hardly any effects with that. What they, you know, on the other end of that, they found that traction of 60% of body weight weight reduced the intradiscal pressure back all the way down to zero. So it made it a neutral environment. They were looking specifically at patients that had been diagnosed, diagnosed with sciatica and were going to be taken, taking the next step to a surgical intervention. And what they did with this group was if you were diagnosed with sciatica and if the next step was surgery, they put a speed bump in there. They did this, they did a vow to physical therapy where the control group just got the physical therapy, the study group got the physical therapy and the inversion, and then they looked at um, whether or not surgery was actually performed because of the symptoms and what the physicians recommended and what the physicians felt changed over time. What they found in the, in the two groups, the control group, 22% avoided surgery, which means that 88% went ahead and had surgery. Um, on the other end of that, the inversion group, 77% avoided surgery. I'm not a rocket scientist, but that's some pretty, that's pretty noticeable difference in outcomes uh, where the only difference was inversion. Again, they, don't, they, they didn't um, go on to make any wild claims about what they thought was creating the change or created the difference. All they did was an observational, this group got inversion therapy, and more people avoided surgery in this group than in the group that didn't have inversion therapy. 2019 article. Um, this one's talking about um, distraction. The effect of knee joint traction therapy on pain, physical function, and depression in patients with, de with degenerative arthritis. It was published in the Journal of Korean Physical Therapy. What they found was after traction, in patients that had degenerative arthritis, these patients had a significant decrease in pain. They saw a significant improvement in physical function, and they also had a significant decrease in depression. Uh, they found that the traction resulted in muscle relaxation and an inhibition of protective muscle reflection. So we're now talking traction. Remember, Earlier, I talked about the difference between traction and brachiation. This was formal traction, so not brachiation. They also, with the traction that they involved here, a little bit outside the scale of what many of us can do on a day-to-day -day basis, they used surgically enhanced methods for traction. They went in and they put rods into the tibia, into the femur, and then they were able to apply force between the rods to create the gapping within the joint. I don't have access to that on a day-to-day -day basis, and I don't know many patients that are going to let me do that to them, but this was a study, and we found some valuable information from it. Um, I think it's important to note that even though we aren't talking about brachiation, 
creating that gapping, creating that space within the knee joint, we also saw that decrease in muscle activity. We saw, we saw some relaxation taking place. Um, so that kind of, again, goes back to looking at what kind of effects this full brachiation or even isolated traction, not just the mechanical effects that it has, but what effect is that having on the central nervous system? And can we leverage that to create a change? And I think the more of these we talk about, the more that answer becomes yes. We can leverage traction and brachiation to help turn things off, to decrease muscle activation and promote that, that parasympathetic response, that get away from fight or flight and get into rest and digest. 2011 article, tissue structure modification in knee osteoarthritis by use of joint distraction, an open one-year pilot study. Um, they came out with the statement that joint distraction can reverse tissue structure changes in patients with knee osteoarthritis. They found an increase in cartilage thickness, an increase in weight-bearing joint space, and a decrease in denuded bone area. They hypothesized that the temporary distraction prevented the mechanical stress on the cartilage, preventing further wear and tear and allowed tissue repair to begin. Again, traction, not brachiation. So limited or scaled back effects to the central nervous system. And really what they focused on here were the mechanical effects. They mechanically created space. They mechanically opened things up with the distraction that they used. And they found structural changes that, that, that came about from that within, within those, os those knees that had osteoarthritis. So we know, again, we know that we're going to get some mechanical distractions, some mechanical gapping. This article supports that in the presence of that, and when we use that appropriately, we can use that mechanical gapping to create structural change, to create an environment where positive adaptation can take place. Last article, 1994, published in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, titled, The Effect of Leg Elevation on the Skin, Microcirculation, and Chronic Venous Insufficiency. Um, they looked at elevating the limb in regards to enhancing the microcirculatory flow. Um, Basically what they were doing, they, they talked about how we know what happens in the large veins and the large arteries when we um, elevate a limb. We know how that supports the venous system, the large veins, um, but what they were looking at was what's going on out of the capillaries, the microcirculation. And what they found was that that microcirculatory flow velocity was enhanced due to a decrease in venous pressure. Um, on the other side of that, that decrease in venous pressure, we saw an increase in arteriovenous pressure against gravity and the capillary flow. So we saw an increase in the capillary flow pressure. So we, we saw even, we, we know what happens at the venous at the large vein level, but what they were getting at here is at our target tissues, out at the extremities, you know, as distal as we can get and as most superficial as we can get, we are seeing a, a, the venous system being supported by carrying that 
deoxygenated blood, that blood that is full of waste products away from the, from the distal and away from the superficial levels into the venous system. Um, and on the other side of that, we are seeing that, that void being filled by an increase in capillary flow, more of the oxygenated, nutrient-rich blood being brought to the area. This article is actually based off of uh, a paper that was published in January of 1930 that was titled Gravity Drainage and Hand Infections. Basically, the author of that wrote about the success he was having in those patients that had, had some kind of wound on their hand that got infected, and he was using gravity to aid that drainage. Um, again, using the effects of gravity, what we know about gravity, to benefit and create a physical response. In this, this physician in the 1930s that wrote the paper, uh, wrote his paper on the effects he was having with this, he knew that gravity carried the venous, the, 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 the deoxygenated blood, the blood that was full of waste products. He knew that by manipulating gravity, he could get more of that out of the area so that more oxygenated blood could be brought to the area to promote the healing process. So, in summation, from a research standpoint, there's a, several articles we talked about. I broke it down into brachiation, inversion, and then traction, distraction. We know that man was meant to hang by the arms. We know that hanging and climbing are not the same thing. Hanging, we get a decrease in tension. With climbing, we see an increase in activation. And that we know, we know that brachiation creates changes within the body, and we have several articles that shows that brachiation creates changes in the shape of the spine, which is important to understand. Inversion is safe. Yes, an article came out in 1983 and they recommended against it, but the more we've researched, the more we've looked at the cardiovascular, what effects we see in the cardiovascular system when we invert people, we, it is safe. Um, we know that inversion promotes parasympathetic dominance, rest and digest. Research supports a decrease in neuromuscular tension. And several articles come back and say that two to three minutes is really all that's required to get the full benefits of inversion. Now that's two to three minutes at a time. So we're not going to have to hang people upside down for 30 minutes at a time to get an effect. We can get, we can get an effect at two to three minutes and use that to, to our advantage. In certain populations, we see an improvement in fine motor skills, and we, we see that with inversion, we can have an improvement in venous return, especially in the lower extremities. Distraction, we have several articles that show that distraction, that there's a, a reversal in tissue structural damage. Um, it takes about 60% of body weight to remove all pressure in the lumbar spine. We know that distraction decreases pain and depression, and we know that distraction improves function. So there's a lot that we can get from the research. There's a lot of clinical outcomes that the research can direct us to that by understanding brachiation and inversion a little bit more, a little bit deeper, where we can use those tools to get those clinical outcomes, which is what we're going to talk about in part two. Part two, we're going to get into the clinical application of this. How do we apply what the research has directed us towards? How do we apply what we have found out about brachiation and inversion? 
how do we apply that into a very targeted population within the clinical world? Um, and I think to under to get to that question, we, we have to ask some questions. We have to ask some other questions. Why? Why are we going to take brachiation and inversion and implement it clinically? Well, research directs us to a lot of positive outcomes. I think the biggest is the fact that we can change and downregulate the central nervous system. I think that is extremely important in today's world where um, we are seeing a lot of global health problems that are that seemingly have very few concrete reasons for why that all come back to anxiety I won't say anxiety that's that all come back to us being in a sympathetic response we are stuck in fight or flight our lives our world our technology always has us on we're always on we're always going we're always busy we're always productive we're always doing the human body was designed to, to be able to do that for a little bit but we need adequate rest we need to be able to shut things off we need to be able to down regulate things and one of the way and unfortunately our lives our world our occupation and even our, our how we choose to play in our sports we've tended to to, to neglect that side of things um, i think it's interesting you know if we if we look back on a lot of the warrior cultures uh, that literally had to fight for their survival you know the the fight gets glorified in the movies gladiator um, several other movies that I can't think of the titles of them right off the top of my head the fight side of, of those cultures are what we portray today what we see today what we don't see is the other side of that in every warrior culture there was just as much emphasis placed on the martial side the fighting side as there was on the recovery and the rejuvenation side because what they understood that we don't understand today is that when those warriors returned they had to reintegrate into society and I'm not uh, in no way shape or, uh, or form am I saying that every single person in today's world is a warrior that's not what I'm talking about but, but at the extreme where we had societies and civilizations that were fighting for their own survival they understand that we have to come back down from that to be a, a, a to be a stable and to be a, a, a civilization with long-term potential we don't see that today not only do we not see that ability to understand self-recovery and self-rejuvenation in our day-to-day -day lives we don't take that to our current warriors to our current servicemen that are currently fighting for our way of life if we don't apply it at the lowest level, those of us that are at home working on a day-to-day -day basis and we can't figure out how to do it there in this overall low-stress environment, how are we going to be able to do it for those individuals that have been at the opposite end of that in a war zone, you know, actually in combat, in battle? Because if we can't do it and we can't figure out how to get an office worker somebody that spends all day sitting at a desk answering phones or teaching and not to take away from those professions just a little bit different than than, than a combat situation but if we can't figure out how how these low physical stress 
um, how to regulate recovery and rejuvenation in these low physical stress situations. How are we going to do it in high physical stress situations? How are we going to do it from a central nervous system standpoint? And one of the benefits of, of brachiation and inversion is we know that we can downregulate the central nervous system. And a lot of the issues, a lot of the problems that we have because of our world and our environment today, our central nervous system is always upregulated. This is a way for us to easily and, and simply downregulate that. We can create a very sit, rich sensory environment for our central nervous system. And we know that our central nervous system, one of the beauties of the human central nervous system, it is extremely adaptable. It is constantly adapting. What we forget, though, is that either we're making positive adaptations or negative adaptations. We can use inversion and brachiation to create a rich sensory environment to make positive adaptations, both physical adaptations and adaptations within the central nervous system. We can improve vascular return. Anybody with an injury to the lower extremities, anybody that has any kind of comorbidities, which could be age, which could be BMI, which could be other health issues. Um, in the clinical world, this is our gen pop population. This is our older population. When I say older, I mean anybody over the age of 25. This is our elderly population. This is our parents. We know that with age, the cardiovascular system it, it's much more of a load on our vascular system. Inversion brachiation can support that vascular system, can aid that vascular system. We know that we can create some space, we can create some gapping, um, which is going to mechanically open up the joints. Um, research has shown that we can create or we can inhibit the Golgi tendon organs, which goes back to downregulating the central nervous system and creating a sensory a rich sensory environment. And then there's the effect that this can have on our lymphatic tissue. Now, interestingly, I couldn't find a single article that talked about the lymphatic system and brachiation. I don't know why, because those are two areas that everybody is looking at for the last 20 years. That was sarcasm. Uh, neither one have received the level of, of actual research and investigation that they, they truly warrant. Um, but what we do know is that we do know that the lymphatic system follows along with the vascular system. The lymphatic system and the vascular system are not the same. But we do know that the lymphatic system follows along with the vascular system. And we do know that the vascular system is aided by inversion. So we can make the assumption that the lymphatic system is going to potentially see some benefits from inversion as, from inversion as well. So I think it's important for us to understand um, where we see some of the down regulation coming from, where we see some of the changes in muscular tension coming from. Um, we have to have a discussion about the Golgi tendon organs. In the notes for this lecture, there's a link to a web page that has several articles that talks about those. You can follow that link in the, again in the notes. Um, but I think it's important to understand and, and just take a second to recall what the GTOs do. Um, you know, they it's activated by muscular contractions or a stretch of the tendons. Those GTOs sit within that musculotendinous interface um, 
And when they're stimulated, when they sense a stretch, they create a the inhibition, the alpha motor neurons, um, to promote that muscle relaxation, to help protect that muscle and the connective tissue from excessive load potential injuries. And it's interesting to know, you know, it takes as little as 0.01 gram to stimulate the, those Golgi tendon organs. So they're, they're fairly um, receptive to changes in force to that stretch. And one of the things, if we think about where those GTOs are located, at that musculotendinous junction, when we utilize brachiation, we're putting a stretch through the muscle Therefore, we're stimulating that GTO. We're getting that reflex, that reflexive inhibition. We're turning things down. We're, we're taking away some of that um, tension within the muscle because we're leveraging the GTOs, that, you know, and the function of the GTOs. So I think it's important to understand that one of the, the ways in a, that we can maximize and one of the benefits that we can get out of brachiation is that stimulation of the GTO to downregulate, to turn things off. We get that locally from the, from the Golgi tendon organs themselves and we can capitalize off of that. But also when we are coupling that brachiation with inversion and the change that we're getting within the central nervous system, now we can get a local response from the Golgi tendon organs as well as a systemic response from that change in the central nervous system, that, that transition from a, uh, a, from a sympathetic response to a parasympathetic response, the rest and digest. Any of you that have listened to me talk or read anything that I've written know that I, I like to relate things back to the neurodevelopmental sequence continuum. So the question we have to ask ourselves is where does brachiation fit into the neurodevelopmental sequence and continuum? And the, the simple answer is it doesn't. Uh, when we talk about the neurodevelopmental sequence continuum, we're talking about the first, you know, 24 months of life, birth to age two. Um, we don't see kids hanging from things very often at that point in time. Now, we see older kids, uh, school-age kids, like I related, some of us have had, have that story of the monkey bars. We see that happening a lot later on in life. We see kids climbing on things. We see kids hanging on things. Um, it's very, it's a very fun environment for those kids, but it doesn't fit within the developmental sequence. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a valuable thing that helps to create the human body. It is. It, it, it creates a very rich sensory environment. It creates a very unique load on the tissues. And in all actuality, you know, research has shown that brachiation shapes us. So it is important for us as kids to hang and to brachiate, but it doesn't fall within the developmental sequence. It doesn't fall within the postures of the developmental sequence. Now, I don't want to get into it too much, but the entire intent of the neurodevelopmental sequence is to get away from the ground and overcome gravity, to have a very large base of support to a very small base of support, to have our center of mass on the ground and then away from the ground. Once we get up on our feet, we're about as far away from the ground as we can get until we can get even further away from the ground, which is climbing and brachiating, but that's beyond vertical stance. And vertical stance is kind of seen as the last posture of the developmental sequence and continuum. And like I said just a second ago, 
we see kids doing this. It's called play. Play is how kids advance the neural developmental sequence and continue. Play is how kids create a very rich sensory environment and it's how they explore, it's how they interact, it's how they get feedback, it's how they push the limits and find out what they can and can't do. And because of that play, their body continues to be molded by the forces that are going on from gravity and from the activities that they're doing. So hanging is not a part of the developmental sequence. It happens after. It's beyond stance. Um, and it is very important. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, in the quest to get away from the ground, it doesn't fit in any of our, our neurodevelopmental postures. Prone, supine, quadruped, kneeling, sitting, stance. It's beyond stance. And this goes back to what Dr. Martin started talking about and what Dr. Thomas advocated, the uncommon postures. Brachiation and inversion. Those are things that are uncommon. They happen after we get to vertical stance. So when we're talking about brachiation, and we're talking about the clinical integration of brachiation, anytime we're talking about brachiation, these are the requisites for all of brachiation. Um, you have to understand any limitations or restrictions your physician places upon you if for the care of the athlete or the patient that you're working with in regards to range of motion, strengthening, sling use, weight-bearing status, etc. You have to know that. If you don't know that, giant red flag. Um, you have to understand the surgical procedure or the injury or trauma that the patient is recovering from. Um, you have to understand what happened. You have to understand what structures are involved so that you can understand how the tissue healing parameters, how the healing process is having, what effects the healing process is having on the involved tissues. We have to know what was involved so that we know how they're progressing through that healing process, the injury physiology. Um, no acute pain. If somebody is in acute pain, we should not have them brachiating or inversion. I'm very specific here. Acute pain. Acute pain is from the stimulation of the nociceptors due to some kind of structural damage, some kind of trauma, or some kind of chemical response to structural damage or trauma. Some nociceptor is being is creating is being stimulated to tell us that there's pain to create that warning signal. However, we all have experienced pain. We have patients experiencing pain that don't have any structural problem, that don't have any trauma, that don't have any structural damage, but they're still in pain. When there's a structural involvement, when there's tissue damage, when there's trauma, we have structural pain when my shoulder hurts but I don't have a mechanism and the structure's fine and I'm not getting that actual stimulation of the nociceptors, that's not acute pain. I'm not saying it's not pain, it's a different kind of pain. When there's acute pain, when there's known structural damage, when there's known um, stimulation of those nociceptors, we probably need to hold off on brachiation at this point in time. That's when, how we were all classically trained in traction, that's where traction might be a little bit more appropriate depending on the case, depending on the situation. I'm not saying apply traction to people with structural damage. Use your clinical skills, use your, your critical thinking to determine if that is an appropriate intervention for the person standing in front of you. Uh, the patient, the individual has to have the ability to get into the inversion boots or onto the inversion table. They can't get the boots on and can't get on the table. It's not going to get better from there. Um, 
if it doesn't start well, it's not going to end well. So if you're really struggling with somebody in the inversion boots or on the inversion table, I wouldn't expect things to get better all of a sudden because they finally got there. So they have to have the ability, the physical ability to get into the boots or to get onto the inversion table. And then most importantly, you as the clinician, you're the skilled healthcare practitioner. You need to have an integrated plan that involves tissue work, corrective strategies, and strengthening. That's your job. Brachiation inversion isn't going to be the silver bullet that is the one thing that fixes all things. If it were, we wouldn't have had that gap in the 80s where nobody did it. Um, it's not all-inclusive. It's not the cure-all. It's not the thing that fixes all the things. It provides, brachiation inversion provide a very unique stress to the body. It allows us to manipulate gravity and change how gravity is affecting the body. Part of a plan, part of a well-rounded plan based on a, a very thorough assessment, and you can get some benefits from it. But if you're doing this with the hope that it's going to fix the person in front of you, hope in one hand, crap in the other. Which one's going to fill up first? Hope is not a plan. Hope is not a plan. We can be optimistic, but we can't be basing our clinical outcomes on hoping that things work right. Integrating this into a well-rounded clinical plan based on a well-performed assessment, and now we have something to talk about. Now we can see some clinical benefits and some clinical outcomes that are going to be positive. For upper extremity brachiation, um, when we're brachiating from the upper extremities, very rarely is there inversion. It's, we're just getting some traction with that. We know, research has shown us in an article from 1982, Developmental Aspects of Shoulder Control, that the shoulder learns to be a shoulder under load before it can be used to manipulate items. The shoulder is weight-bearing before it's manipulative. So we know that we need to pass a load, pass some kind of weight-bearing stress through the shoulder. So brachiation is a way in which we can do that. Some of the research I reviewed earlier showed and talked about how the shoulder is designed to climb and hang. Um, research article published in 2016, EMG activity of selected rotator cuff musculature during grade 3 distraction and posterior glenohumeral mobilizations results of a pilot trial comparing painful and non-painful shoulders published in the Journal of Manipulative or Manual and Manipulative Therapy. It shows that the supraspinatus and infraspinatus are significantly active during these techniques, and the techniques they're referring to are glenohumeral distraction and posterior glide. We know that when we distract the shoulder, create that gapping, that that's going to activate the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. Why? Because they're dynamic stabilizers of the shoulder. Their job is to keep the shoulder together and not let it get pulled apart. So a little bit of distraction force is going to create some activity. It's going to create some activation within those muscles to prevent damage to the shoulder. Research has shown in an article uh, 2016 published in the shoulder and elbow. Do changes in hand grip strength correlate with shoulder rotator cuff function? Yes. They found that there's a strong relation a strong correlation between grip strength and lateral rotator cuff strength shown in all positions that they looked at. We know that, the sh that, that distraction, we know that brachiation creates increased activity, forces grip, which also creates an increase in rotator cuff activity to protect the shoulder. Research that I reviewed earlier, it's hanging and brachiation stimulate 
the central nervous system, through the Golgi tendon organs. Um, just talking about brachiation, we're not going to see the inversion that we talked about creating some systemic responses to the central nervous system, but we know that upper extremity brachiation that does not involve inversion, we can, we can leverage the local response of the GTO and the muscular system. And getting the hits with all forms of brachiation where the arms are above the heart, which if you're doing any kind of brachiation, the arms are going to be higher than the heart, we know that that's going to aid the vascular system. More often than not, if you have shoulder surgery, you have elbow surgery, the hand is going to be hanging below the heart. So we know effusion out in the extremity, out in the hand, is going to be a long-term problem, or there's a high probability that that's going to be a long-term problem. We can use brachiation where we're getting the hand up above to help aid that vascular response, to help get rid of some of that effusion, especially if we're struggling with it. Or even if we're not struggling with it, we can use it prophylactically to make sure we don't struggle with it. Um, full, when we talk about brachiation, we're going to, especially in the, well, in both the upper extremity and the low, the lower extremity, we're going to talk about full brachiation and partial brachiation. In full upper extremity brachiation, we have the arms all the way overhead and we are hanging like we're at the, getting ready to start a pull up or we're hanging from the monkey bars. The body is still fully vertical. The feet are just off of the ground. We get the full effect of the Golgi tendon organs. It requires more gripping so because we have more load going through this, which is going to increase rotator cuff activation strength, and we get pretty significant venous return. In partial brachiation, whereas in full brachiation the body's here, in partial brachiation we're horizontal, so the arms are hanging, we're hanging from a bar, we're hanging from something with our feet still on the ground, so our trunk is at an angle. We're more horizontalish than we are vertical. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of continuums. Um, certain times we are fully vertical. Certain times we are perfectly horizontal. All the other times we're in the, the world of ish. We're more vertical-ish or we're more horizontal-ish. So with our partial brachiation, we can be very horizontal-ish, less horizontal-ish, or very vertical-ish. If we get to all the way full vertical, our feet are off the ground, now we're in full brachiation. So when we talk about partial brachiation, we are, we're not suspending, we're, we're not fully hanging off of, our, we're not fully hanging all of our body weight off of the upper extremity. So we get partial effects of the Golgi tendon organs. We still get an activation of the rotator cuff, but because there's less of a load, we're going to get a little bit less activation of the rotator cuff. But in this as well as in full brachiation, we are going to get an improvement or an, an uh, assistance in the venous return because the hands are higher than the heart. From a range of motion or from a requisite for upper body brachiation, for full brachiation, we need 180 degrees of shoulder flexion and 180 degrees of abduction. And we're talking about, and when we're talking about shoulder flexion, if you're a clinician measuring shoulder flexion and you're not blocking the scapula, you're not measuring shoulder flexion. You're measuring how far the shoulder, the glenohumeral joint can flex, and then how far that scapula can protract or um, inferiorly rotate. So we have got, when we're looking at flexion, we have got to block the scapula. When we're looking at abduction, we're bringing the arm out to the side, we know that at some point we max things out and that scapula has to glide with the humerus. That's okay, but in either way, we need 180 degrees 
of abduction where the scapula can move, and we need 180 degrees of shoulder flexion with the scapula blocked. We have to get that end range. We have to get it 180 degrees because if I don't have range of motion here with my arms all the way overhead, what's going to happen when I'm now suspending my entire body weight through my shoulders? If, thing, if I don't have the range of motion and now I add load on top of that, the human body is great at creating adaptations. We are the most adaptable species on the planet. And if I'm trying to brachiate on incomplete range of motion, I will still brachiate, but we're going to create compensations. And those compensations create problems. In school, we didn't call it compensating when we tried to get some assistance from our friends on a quiz or we tried to get some assistance from the notes we had written on our palm or forearm on a test. We called that cheating. We're a little bit nicer when it comes to talking about it from a movement standpoint because we use nice words like compensating. But at the end of the day, if we don't have full range of motion, you're cheating your patients. We're cheating ourselves. Um, when we talk about partial brachiation, depending on how horizontal we're going to be, we need at least 90 degrees of shoulder flexion um, for some of the partial stuff. Either case, full brachiation or partial brachiation, we need full elbow extension, uh, zero. Um, from a loading standpoint, if we're talking about surgical patients or patients that have had uh, some kind of tissue trauma, we like to hold off on full brachiation until we get out past the eight-week mark. Uh, partial brachiation, we can begin as soon as adequate range of motion is present. Um, if the physician gives you a weight limit, you can't use more than five pounds, you can't lift more than five pounds. Most of us have an upper extremity that even a partial brachiation is going to exceed that five pound limit. So you're going to have to work within that poundage limit that the physician gives you. Um, it is important that you understand the um, injury physiology, the tissue healing parameters of the structures that your patient is recovering, uh, the structures that, you're, that are involved in your, your patient's injury or surgery. Because it is very important to understand that uh, we, we know tissue responds to appropriate stress. We know tissue responds to stress. Wolf's Law, Davis's Law, we know that both soft tissue and bony tissue are going to respond to the stresses that are placed through it. So it's important to understand what structures are involved in the injury or the surgery because we can use brachiation to apply those stresses to capitalize off of Wolf's Law and Davis's Law to promote some tissue healing. So we're going to have to look at and keep in mind um, some of the structures that are involved so that we can know how much is too much and how much is not enough. One of the things that's not listed on here, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because it is just as important as what I have listed on here, is we shouldn't see an increase in pain when we transition into brachiation. People might be a little apprehensive. People might, might be a little bit um, scared of going into brachiation, and that's acceptable. They, especially if they haven't done it since they were in middle school hanging off of the, play, uh, the monkey bars. It's okay to be apprehensive or nervous about hanging, about brachiation. We should not, however, get an increase in pain. Um, a pain response is a red flag when it comes to brachiation. Um, a pain response tells me that we missed something up to this point. Maybe they don't have full, complete range of motion of shoulder flexion. Maybe 
what we thought was going on, maybe the assumption that we made that they were far enough out from a tissue healing standpoint to have enough tensile strength of the tissue to support that load. Maybe we were off by just a little bit. Uh, pain is that warning. Pain means that we need to go back and consider all of the requisites to to the brachiation because something's probably, we probably, we just need to make sure that we didn't miss something up to this point in time. When we're talking about lower extremity brachiation, um, hanging brachiation of the lower body is essentially equivalent of compression of the upper body. Um, normal day to day, our arms hanging down by our side, side, we get gapping of the shoulder, we get gapping of the elbow, we get gapping of the carpal bones because gravity's pulling those structures apart. However, the lower extremity is compressed during normal day-to-day -day activities. So when we brachiate the lower body, that's like us, that's like us compressing the upper body where we're pushing, we're doing the opposite of what is happening in normal day-to-day activity-wise. Um, in lower extremity brachiation, we are more often than not going to have inversion, and we're always going to have traction. Uh, this counters the and corrects the adverse effects of gravity produced by the common postures. We get the distraction and gapping of the hip, the knee, the ankle, the pelvis, and up into the spine. Um, we're going to stimulate the central nervous system at a local level within the Golgi tendon organs and the muscle spindles, as well as the systemic level within the vestibular cochlear system, as well as the visual system. And because our feet are always below our heart level during the day, we're going to aid the vascular and lymphatic system. Just like in the upper body, we have full lower extremity brachiation, and we have partial lower extremity brachiation. Full lower extremity brachiation, we're hanging from our ankles, we are vertical. We're past 60 degrees, we're 60 to 90 degrees. Uh, at 60 degrees, we know um, through the different research and articles that from 60 degrees to 90 degrees of inversion, we're getting the same effects. Um, because of this, we are bearing the full weight of our of our body through our lower extremity with the with this full inversion. So we're going to get the full effects of the Golgi tendon organs. Um, we're going to get a full effect in the venous system. I think it's important to understand when we are fully inverted because of what's happening with the Golgi tendon organs, how the GTOs are protectively turning off, and I don't know if protectively is a word, because we're getting a protective response where muscle tension, muscle activation is dialed down. What's happening is the load that is normally transferred through those dynamic structures, we're taking those dynamic structures offline because of the GTOs, now that load is being passed through our static structures. Remember the definition of traction, uh, forces exerted through the skeletal system. We are now passing all of that load through the static structure of the skeletal system, our bones, our joint capsules, our ligaments. So we have to keep in mind for ACL, PCL, MPFL grafts at the knee, um, our patients that have had a hip labral or capsule, re, uh, capsule surgery, we are now placing stress through those grafts, through that repaired tissue. Uh, if somebody's had a meniscal surgery, we're actually creating space within that joint capsule. We're taking pressure off of that meniscus. So if we have a meniscal patient where we are in a non-weight-bearing status, we're still non-weight-bearing with this. We're creating space within that, within that joint. 
Um, we are essentially, we need to be cognizant if we have an ACL graft, a PCL graft, or an MPFL graft, where they are time-wise. In those patients that have had any an ACL reconstruction, a PCL reconstruction, MPFL reconstruction, um, those patients holding off until we get out past the eight-week mark, it probably is our due diligence to do that because we are placing a lot of stress. We, we will be increasing the stress, the traction stress the, through those graphs, and we will be challenging or uh, we will have to take into consideration the pullout strength of the hardware and of those graphs. Again, those are the static structures that have been reconstructed for a meniscal repair. We're, we're causing some opening. We do have an attachment of the medial meniscus into the MCL, um, but unfortunately there's not a lot of research out there that even looks at that. But if you think about the orientation of the MCL, um, and if we have a knee that is fully, we have an individual that's fully brachiated, and we're elongating that MCL, I don't necessarily see how the line of force could do anything harmful to uh, a meniscal, a meniscus that's been repaired. Um, the other thing too, what compromises a meniscal repair increases the risk of failure is shear force and compression. If we're fully brachiated hanging from the legs, we're not going to have any shear force. We don't have any compression. So we don't have any shear and compression happening at the same time. So if you're hesitant about that, if you're concerned about that, it's simple. Don't brachiate somebody. If you're good with it, if you're comfortable with it, start with some partial brachiation and work our way up. Now, partial brachiation. We are more horizontal-ish, vertical, horizontal-ish. Um, we get a partial effect of the GTOs, which means our static structures are going to be bearing a lot of the load. Um, our dynamic structures have been dialed down, just like they were in the in in the fully in the full brachiation, where we we're fully vertical. So it's important to understand that we're dialing down the tension in those those dynamic structures. So if we have a patient's patellar tendon repair, quad tendon repair, um, if somebody's had, so in either one of those, um, we're dialing down the tension across that repair site. So I don't know that I'd feel fully comfortable taking a patient that had a, quadris, a quad tendon repair. I don't know if I'd be fully comfortable with full brachiation with them, but we could get them into a partial brachiation where we're getting a, a local benefit of the GTO, but we're not having the entire weight of their body hanging across that repair site. And later on in part three, when we go over the advanced techniques, we hopefully be able to see the difference and understand the difference between what kind of stresses that's going to be placing across that repair site. Um, and those patients that have had any kind of bony work in the hip, uh, a subscapine decompression, chondroplasty, any of that stuff. Um, partial brachiation of the lower extremity is going to create some space, going to hopefully take some compression away from that, which is going to aid in the pinching that we're feeling, that those patients are feeling from or feeling due to that procedure. We also, again, we're getting a, an improvement and we're getting some assistance when it comes to that venous return. So partial brachiation is a safer version because we have less stress going through the body. With partial brachiation, we only get stimulation from, uh, we only get the local stimulation of the GTOs and muscle spindles to dial down tension. Um, full brachiation, we get systemic. So we have to keep that, we have to keep clear on that. That being said, 
I always start patients with partial brachiation. It lets them get comfortable, it lets them get used to it, and we're, we're really able to control the load that we're passing through those structures where there have been an injury, a trauma, or a surgery without putting a lot of stress or a lot of forces through those repaired tissues or, or joints. From a range of motion standpoint in the lower extremity, um, both the hip and the knee for full brachiation, we have to have zero degrees of extension. We have to be able to get the knee to full extension. We have to be able to get the hip to full extension. Um, partial brachiation, that knee still needs to, well, partial brachiation, we need greater than 80 degrees of hip flexion. If somebody's lacking knee extension, partial brachiation is a way to, again, leverage the response of the Golgi tendon organs to get those hamstrings and the quads and the gastroxoleus complex to turn down some of their activation and allows us to take some of those dynamic structures off the table. Um, it allows us to take away some of that protective guardian that might be contributing to that. So in those instances, partial brachiation is a great way to leverage the GTOs to help us reclaim some of that lost extension that's there. From a loading standpoint, um, surgical patients, Full brachiation, we need to hold off at least out into that 12-week mark. Uh, full brachiation, we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of load that's being placed through, a lot of distraction, a lot of gapping that's being placed through the hip, through the knee. Uh, so we have to be very cognizant about what the repair site, what the tensile strength of that repair site is. The nice thing is partial brachiation, that comes off the table. Um, Ideally, we want to wait till about the eight-week mark when there's a static structure that's been repaired, an ACL, a PCL, an M, uh, MCL, MPFL. If it's a repair or reconstruction of some of the dynamic structures, patellar tendon, quad tendon, um, Achilles, once the range of motion is, is where it needs to be, once the range of motion requisites are there, then we can start some low-level partial brachiation emphasis on low-level partial brachiation. If somebody's had a meniscal repair in isolation, same thing. Uh, we're not going to get the compression in the shear of the meniscal of the meniscal tissue, which is what is what has the highest likelihood of causing that to become a failure. So as soon as that range of motion is present, we can start some partial brachiation with them as well. Again, we're going to start our lower body patients with partial brachiation because we can very easily control how much stress we're placing across that surgically repaired joint. What we can target, in the upper extremity, we can manipulate rotator cuff activation. We can turn it up by, by increasing how much grip is required. We can work on some fear avoidance. Um, we can get them comfortable in different ranges, different positions. Um, in those instances where we have a scapula that's jealous of the ear and the scapula wants to become the ear and it starts sitting up really close to the ear because it's hoping that it can become an ear out of osmosis, we can retrain that scapula to be a scapula again, to get away from the ear and be, be its own self um, through both partial and full inversion. We can work on elbow extension and cervical and thoracic motor control, getting the cervical spine and the thoracic spine to be cervical spines and thoracic spines again, um, all through different 
all through progressing through both partial and full upper extremity brachiation. In the lower extremity, we can target knee extension, like what I was talking about earlier. If we have a neuromuscular contribute, if we have a, a neuromuscular system that's contributing to a lack of knee extension because of fear avoidance or increased activation, partial brachiation is a great way to leverage your GTOs to, to give us some assistance to take that off the table. Any of our post-op hip patients that have had bony work that are getting a pinch in that hip, we can use partial brachiation to create some gapping to create some separation in that tissue and take that away. If it's a hip scope where there's been a labral repair or a capsular closure, we just need to be cognizant of that. We need to understand what the physician's restrictions and limitations are. And it is okay to have a conversation with your physician and ask him uh, what his thoughts are before you move forward with that, if that's something that you're comfortable doing. If you're not comfortable doing it, I would recommend getting comfortable having that conversation with your physician because everybody's going to benefit from it. But in those instances where there's been a capsular closure or, or labral repair, start on the very low end with some very low-level partial brachiation when your physician's comfortable with it. We can work on teaching the pelvis how to function like a pelvis. We can start working on pelvic motor control, uh, both partial and full inversion. I'll put the emphasis on partial inversion right now. Again, creates a very unique sensory environment. Uh, the pelvis has to learn how to have an integrated stability response, otherwise known as motor control. Um, you have a patient that experiences anterior pelvic tilt. Well, we can inhibit some of those culprits, the psoas, the iliacus, the hamstrings, the quads, the erectors. We can use that, the, we can again, I'm going to say this one more time, we can leverage a local response at the Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles to take them off the table, to get them to quiet down. Um, so those are some things clinically that we can address. Inversion brachiation has has been around and they've talked about it a lot when it comes to uh, treating low back pain. Um, these by far aren't all of the cases that you can, all the things that we can target clinically with, with inversion and brachiation. Um, anywhere in the trunk we have an overactivation or uh, a fight or flight or, or we see something that creates a fight or flight response in an individual, we can use some level of inversion and brachiation to, to counter that. So it doesn't just have to be on this list. If we're seeing that kind of systemic response, we can leverage inversion and brachiation to, to get the outcomes that we want with that. Okay, we're going into part three. Part three is the advanced techniques. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, we are quickly coming to a close for you because as good as the podcast is, it doesn't allow you to see some of this stuff. And there is an accompanying video with this where you can click on the link in the show notes where you can be, will be taken to a private video where you get to see these techniques taking place. Unfortunately, you won't be able to do this part of your podcast. Those of you watching the video, you're watching the video, you're going to get to see it, and you won't have to do anything different. So there's a lot of video that accompanies this, So because I'm, I'm actually going to take you through to see what partial and full upper extremity brachiation is, what partial and full lower extremity brachiation is, and how to kind of blur the lines and how to start to implement some of these different interventions and techniques. So if you're watching on the podcast, here in a second, I'm going to wrap it up, um, and you'll have to watch the video. If you're watching the video, just... Humor me. 
and continue to watch the video. Now, when we talk about advanced techniques, it's not the exercise. I teach a graduate class at Missouri State University called the Advanced Advanced Therapeutic Exercise or Advanced Corrective Exercise. I don't even know what the name of the title is, so that means I must be a horrible instructor. But it, I think I want to say it's Advanced Therapeutic Techniques or Advanced Corrective Exercise. And like I said, since I started teaching that class back in 2009, the least important component of that is the exercise component. Einstein once said, true knowledge comes with deep understanding of a topic and its inner workings. When we talk about advanced application, it's not about the exercise of brachiation. It's not about the brachiation drill we're going to do. It's about understanding brachiation. It's about understanding the response brachiation and inversion has on the Golgi tendon organs. It's about understanding the response that brachiation has on creating that shift from a, from a sympathetic fight or flight response to a parasympathetic rest and digest response to where we can use both the local GTOs and the systemic shift in our central nervous system response to dial down tension. It's about understanding that we can mechanically create space and create a very rich sensory environment. It's about understanding that this rich sensory environment can teach the pelvis how to become a pelvis again, how it can teach the scapula to be a scapula again, how it can teach the trunk and the pelvis to communicate with each other. The advanced application of this is in your understanding, not in the exercise. So if you want the exercise that is going to fix all things, I'm not going to be able to give it to you. And I'm hoping that when you watch the videos and we go through and talk about some of the applications of the full and partial upper and lower extremity brachiation, that this will just be a starting point for you, that it will trigger a thought or a response or an idea about something else that you saw, some other thought that you had, so that you can apply it to a higher level because this is the application. It's about being able to apply this. Um, when we talk about advanced, advanced application, it's it, the word advanced comes it originated in the in the 1530s and it's far ahead in the course of actions or ideas being beyond others in attainment of degree etc again it's not the exercise it's not the brachiation it's your understanding as a clinician about what that creates it's about your critical thinking skills and being able to see a problem understand what's going on with that and have an idea about an intervention. So that's where we're going to get into the advanced application of this. Questions though before we get in. How long do we hang for? Well research has shown 70 seconds minimum. That's probably not enough to get any kind of effect. We know that we need two to three minutes to get the full effect of brachiation. So ideally what we do when we hang people up, when we brachiate people, is we have them brachiated, we have them inverted, we have them partially hanging for two to three minutes at a time, then we take them down and we do something. We integrate it in with something else and we'll do that several times. Um, it seems to be that's the most comfortable for the patient um, in a clinical setting, just kind of hanging there. It gets kind of boring after time. So to keep it as rich of a sensory experience as we can for the patients, we hang them up for two to three minutes and then we do something and we go back and forth between the two. Personally, I like to put on my gravity boots, go out to my garage, and I'll hang upside down for 10-15 minutes at a time. Um, sometimes because of choice, sometimes because I passed out, because it was a rough day, I don't know. Um, but I have access to that at my house. 
but I'm not going to help what I do. I'm not necessarily going to do that exact same thing with my patients. So two to three minutes at a time for the full effect. If your goal is decreasing muscular tension, we know that those Golgi tendon organs are going to kick on and we're going to get a reflexive relaxation. That's great to get a reflexive relaxation, but I need true relaxation. So I need that muscle to stay relaxed without the GTOs being stimulated. So in that instance, we probably want to wait it out. Give it two to three minutes for the GTOs to spin up and they create that relaxation. They're getting the input, they're getting the input, they're getting that stretch input. Oh, this is a normal situation. That relaxation from the inhibition goes away and now we're just relaxed. We don't have a reflexive inhibition. We have a relaxation that's actually taking place. So if the goal is tension, we're probably going to push the limits up a little bit. We're probably going to have them hang for a little bit longer than two to three minutes at a time. How much brachiation? As much as they can tolerate. The difference is, in all the research studies that we looked at, they wanted as much as they can tolerate. And for most of those that looked at brachiation, they held healthy populations. If we're applying this in a clinical situation, we have individuals that are compromised in some manner, orthopedically more often than not. Uh, they might also be bringing um, some uh, comorbidities to the table. So we want as much as is tolerable within the physician's timetable and within the situational context. If it's somebody that had a, is three weeks out from an ACL reconstruction, the absolute most I'm going to do with them is some very low-level partial brachiation from the lower extremity because that's a static structure. It's not going to be have the tensile strength to handle holding my entire body weight or that patient's entire body weight. So we're going to wait out until we get past that physician's timetable. We're going to start very low. I'm not going to base it off of their tolerance right now. I'm going to base it off of the tolerance of their tissues. Um, I always start partial. One, because it lets me see how the patient's going to react and respond to that. And then we can progress from there. Um, I always start very static-ish. And here's that ish again. Um, not Michigan. It's ish again. Like I said, I live in the world of continuums. It's not either or, it's that gray zone in between. So I always start very static-ish. And when I say static-ish, just lay there and breathe. Hang your feet up and breathe. Hang from the bar and breathe. It's not purely static because we're breathing. There's still a lot of things going on, but it's not as dynamic as if I'm doing cartwheels and backflips and stuff and twisting and doing somersaults and pull-ups. So I want to start very static-ish. I want as few wiggles as possible going on. Just hang out there, literally, and breathe. And then as they get that, we progress into more dynamic activities. And the question is, well, what, do we, what is that progression for dynamic activities? Well, we have that roadmap. We have that roadmap for progression from static-ish to more dynamic-ish or less static-ish. And that progression is given to us within the neural developmental sequence and continuum. It's the patterns within the neural developmental sequence and continuum. Breathing, head control, pushing down, weight shifts, perturbations, and dissociation. That's the progression I follow every single time when I do either partial brachiation or full brachiation of the upper extremity or the lower extremity. So these are the examples of what I'm going to take you through in a second on the video. We're going to do a horizontal hang of, from just the shoulder. Uh, we're going to do a horizontal hang where the trunk's off of the ground. We're going to do a, a, a lateral horizontal hang where I'm hanging off to the side. And then we do a back rack hang. I don't expect you to know what those are. I will go through with those and label those in the video. 
we're going to do a double overhand grip on each of them. We're going to do a double underhand grip, and we're going to do an alternated grip. If you want the technical terms, we're going to do a supinated grip. We're going to do a pronated grip, and we're going to do an alternated supinated pronated grip if you're OCD like that. Um, full brachiation, both arms over the head, feet off the ground. We're going to hang by both arms in a double overhand grip, double pronated. Then we're going to hang with both arms overhead in a double underhand grip or double supinated grip. And then we're going to hang both arms overhead in an alternated grip, one arm supinated, one arm pronated. And then for giggles, we're going to flip it around and do the other side. Um, we're going to go with the hands very wide, and we're going to go with the hands very narrow. And we're going to go through all of those, those three variations, double overhand, double underhand, and alternated. And then we're going to do a traveling grip where we're now engaging the bar with just one hand. And we have a significant weight shift that's going through the shoulder where we're having to react and respond to that. Lower body partial brachiation, we're going to hang from two legs uh, with the hips directly underneath the bar. Our trunk is going to be very horizontal-ish, um, but it's going to be supported by the ground. And because the trunk is supported by the ground, we can and we can very much manipulate how much load is being passed through the body. Um, we're going to do a TRX double leg hang. We're going to do a single leg hang, an anterior single leg hang, and a lateral single leg hang. And I'm going to introduce you to the sloth drill. Um, I'd love to say that I came up with the sloth drill, but one of my patients came up with the sloth drill, and we call it the sloth drill. But in all of these, we're going to go through those patterns of of static-ish breathing to very dynamic-ish dissociation. Full brachiation of the lower extremity. The question I'm going to ask with this, as much as I'm in favor of this and a full supporter of this, if we're talking full brachiation, are we still within the scope of rehab? Or have we gotten to the point where we are now out of rehab and are transitioning into uh, more of a performance or training-based world. Um, full brachiation in, an, in a clinical setting probably is, is easiest to control and manipulate using an inversion table. Um, we have inversion boots that we can use for this, but with full inversion boots, you're literally only in full inversion. You don't have many options. And it's a lot to ask a patient to go full inversion right off the bat. The nice thing about the inversion table is we can control the degree of inversion from a very horizontal manner to all the way to 90 degrees, and we can control how far they go in between. But in any of those, um, we're going to do double leg hangs on both the inversion table and with the gravity boots. If you're using gravity boots, I am going to ask you, are you still within the scope of rehab? And because I think you're going to have to be able to answer that question for you, for your patients, and then if you're in the world of reimbursement from an insurance company, from an insurance reimbursement standpoint. Because if they're at that level and their tissues can handle that much of a load, why are they still seeing you for rehab? I'm not, it's just a question you're going to have to be able to answer. Uh, we're also uh, going to go into single leg hangs, full single leg hangs. And I'm going to reintroduce you to the sloth in case you forgot what it was from the partial brachiation of the lower extremity. Um, and again, just like in partial and full brachiation of the upper extremity and partial brachiation of the lower extremity, we're going to go through the same six patterns in each one of these. Breathing, head control, pushing down, weight shifting, perturbations, and dissociation. We're going to go through that entire progression. Once we're done with that, so once you watch the video, 
Once you've seen the video, now you need to do this. You need to go out and you need to experience. Don't let your patients or the athletes that you're working with be the first person you try these techniques on. That's you. You're your own best guinea pig. You need to go out and play. You need to go to the park. You need to find the monkey bars. You need to climb up and down on them. You need to hang. You need to hang from your arms. You need to travel. You need to brachiate. Um, brachiation is not a part of the first two years of the neurodevelopmental sequence. It is experienced as play after the age of two. So we need to go out and play. You need to go out and experiment. And you need to go experience this through play. Because like I said, you are your best guinea pig because you're not going to sue yourself if you hurt yourself. Do not, do not, do not let your patient experience this before you. Not joking around about that. If you're not willing to do this to yourself, don't do it to your patient. Now, there are some clinical techniques where we cannot do them to ourselves. And I don't expect us to all be the greatest squatters in the world and be able to do an Olympic snatch with our body weight. I don't expect that. But you should be able to do a squat. And you should be able to do a snatch if you're going to have your patients or expect your patients to do that. Because you need to be able to have a conversation with them. The language of movement is feel. That's from Gray Cook. If you've never felt what it's like to do an overhead squat with a bar, you can't have that conversation with your patient. You can't understand what your patient's going through and telling you when you're asking them to do a goblet squat because you've never done that. So, from a brachiation standpoint, play around with it. Go out and hang from things. Play and experience this. If you are going to use gravity boots, and I would recommend you use gravity boots or an inversion table for the full brachiation, especially the full lower extremity brachiation because my dorsiflexors are not strong enough for me to put my feet over the bar and hang there. Read the manual that comes along with that. It's not just, well, it is for some legal reasons that it comes along with that, but you need to go in and you need to read that as well. You need to understand what is going on, especially when you're going into full inversion. And like I said on the last slide, you need to experience it before you have your patients experience it. So, if at this point you want CEUs for this, because as soon as you've watched the videos, if you're on the podcast, now once I wrap this up, um, you're going to go in and you're going to watch the videos, hopefully. Um, if you've been watching the video this whole time, you've already seen the videos because it was just in front of that play um, slide. So if you're watching the video, you're coming to an end of the CE requirements. If you're on the podcast, you're going to have to go watch the videos to get to the end of the CE requirements. But in that instance, what you're going to do, um, in the notes for the podcast, in the notes for the presentation, there is a barcode. That barcode is on the slide that says first CE requirement quiz. You're going to hold your camera up. You're going to take your camera out. You're going to open the camera app. You're going to turn the camera around and you're going to hold the camera up to that QR code. And it will take you to a website that has the quiz. You're going to answer all the questions on the quiz. You need to put your name in the first question. It says, what is your name or something along those lines. You have to put your name in there so I can give you credit for that. Once you've taken the quiz, you're going to go to the slide in the course notes or in the packet that you're following along with. It says second CE requirement, course feedback. You can do the same thing. You're going to open your same camera app. You're going to hold it up to a different QR code. It's going to take you to a very similar but different website. And it's going to let you anonymously provide feedback on how off 
somewhere awful this course was. And yes, I did spell anonymous with a five instead of an S. Wonder why. Anyway, once you have completed the course feedback and you've passed the quiz with, with an adequate score, you have completed all of the requirements to get the CEUs. Once you've done both of those, you will get a certificate from me, from Outlaw Movement Systems, granting you the CEUs for this course. This is the end. If you have any questions, if I can be of any further assistance for you, I would love to help out however I can. I can be reached at brandon at movementoutlaws.com or brandon.hetzler, H-E-T-Z-L-E-R, at mercy.net. Um, if you're following along on the PDF or in the course notes, there will be a link to both of those email addresses. If you have specific questions over this, if you have questions on how to implement this, if you have questions on how to apply this, or just random general questions in general that you think I can help you with, I would be happy to. So click on one of those links, enter either one of those email addresses into your internet browser, or if you know where I'm at, you can come find me and ask me those questions face-to-face and -face be happy to answer those questions. I hope you've enjoyed. I hope this wasn't just a complete and utter waste of your time. Um, and I hope you got something from this that will spark a little bit of thought and aid in your quest to become a better clinician and help you further develop your ability to critically think through the situation at hand. So, I hope you've enjoyed.